This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My guest on this episode of The Literary Life is Hernan Diaz on the occasion of the publication of his stunning new novel, Trust. Satisfying the promise of his first novel, In the Distance, which won the Penn Faulkner Award, Lauren Groff says of Trust that it's a radiant, profound, and moving novel. Hernan is the recipient of a Whiting Award and the William Soroyan International Prize for Writing. And I spoke with him from Miami, Florida, while he was at his home in New York City. Welcome, Hernan Diaz, to The Literary Life. It's really really great to be able to speak to you again after we had seen each other just a few weeks ago, uh, very close to the launch of Trust. So I know you've been traveling widely and the reviews have been just remarkable. So I thought a a good way of starting would be just to let me know how you're doing, uh, you know, during this process. What's it been like for you? Well, hi, Mitchell, first of all. It's so lovely to see you again. And it was great indeed to meet you uh, a few weeks ago in in Florida. It was was a memorable event. Um, How is life? Yeah, I don't know. It's very, it's been very strange. It's been... uh, uh a lot has been going on and i've been i've been talking about the book for a very long time and and learning about it as i was as i was telling you before we started recording it's it's funny to have this encounter now with the book as a reader you know myself as a reader of the book uh, not only because i'm giving readings but also i'm 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 experiencing it from that angle, you know. Uh, of course, the the writing is done, but I I you know I have to I have to talk about it, and I talk about it as a close reader of that book that happens to be mine. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, of course, <laughs> it's it's it kind of turns on itself, doesn't it? It's a, yeah, and yeah, particularly particularly with the way that you structured the book, whether you had people writing autobiographies, you had people interpreting uh, other people's lives, you know, so here you are once again, talking about the life, the lives of your characters through yet another prism. Yeah, that's right. And I think part of the experience that I was hoping readers would have with the book involves close reading to, to an enormous, a joyful form of close reading. Like th- there is no quiz at the end or anything, but what I'm saying is the, the more, the more, uh, the closer you read the book, the more rewards you may find in it because there's so many echoes between sections and 
plagiarisms and little games of you know shifting mirrors and stuff like that. Uh, and I, I think it's sort of an added, uh, hopefully, level of, of enjoyment of the book, uh, reading it with that care. After all of these months of describing the book in all of these events, give me your description of what trust is. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you a very quick description, uh, which is uh, trust is a book uh, made up of four different books. Uh, or five almost. The first book I consider to be the table of contents. Uh, it's very important. So that's the first thing you see when they open the book is a table of contents that is full of clues, actually. And I, I was hoping the reader would go back and refer to it uh, every now and then because you can figure certain things out by looking at the table of contents. According to that table of contents, the first um, section the first document uh, you, you will find in the book is a, it's a, is a novel within the novel. It's an entire novel on the shorter side, but still written by fictional author Harold Vanner and published in 1937. Uh, and it's written in a slightly, slightly decadent tone, uh, reminiscent of Henry James or Edith Wharton um, or uh, Constance Fenimore Wilson, that, that sort of turn of the century literature. And um, it tells the story uh, of the wealthiest man in the United States. <laughs> and that is the kind of privilege that I was interested in. Uh, his, his rise and uh, uh, his financial operations and uh, crucially his relationship with his wife. After we finished the, the novel within the novel, we uh, come across uh, a memoir, uh, an autobiography called My Life. Gradually, it becomes clear that the, the, the man writing his own memoir here, uh, his name is Andrew Bevel, is the real life tycoon on whom then that novel that we just read was based. He's not very pleased with the way he's been depicted uh, in the novel, so he is hell-bent on uh, setting the record straight. Uh, this memoir is unfinished. Um, and after it, uh, there is a, uh, yet another uh, memoir uh, or autobiography written by one Ida Partenza, um, a woman now in her 70s. She's had a great career as a, as a writer, as a novelist and nonfiction writing, uh, writer. And um, it emerges eventually that she used to be in her youth, the tycoon's secretary. So we learn yet more about his life and uh, what her role was as um, his secretary. She lives in Brooklyn. She's the daughter of an Italian anarchist. So, so that tension between, you know, uh, wealthy uh, uh, Manhattan and struggling Brooklyn during the depression uh, is also a very important component uh, in the novel. As Ida is writing this, this memoir of hers, uh, she's also doing archival research into the tycoon's personal papers. Among them, she finds uh, his wife's personal diary, and that is the fourth and last book. Depending on how you read the entire novel, we go back here to close reading and all of that, this fourth section would be either a confirmation of the, the, the suspicions you had all along the way, 
or it would be a big revelation. I, and I was hoping to invite both possibilities. Uh, some people will have figured everything out. Uh, others are in for a surprise and both experiences are equally valid. So that is the whole arc of the book. And, and you explained it so beautifully. And oh, thank you. So the, the question I have for you is, tell me a little bit about the genesis of this. How did this come about? Why is it that you decided to write about wealth? You decided to write about the 20s and 30s. And, and how does that mirror where we are today in some way? Yeah, weirdly enough, it didn't start out as a, as a very political book. But of course, when you write about wealth, it is instantly, instantaneously political. But the first thing that drew me to this project was what I imagined, because obviously I'm not the wealthiest man in America, but what I imagined would be a dissonance between absolute reach that comes with a fortune like that and absolute seclusion and removal from, from life. That to me, that made me tick. I can't explain why. It's one of those things that starts becomes an itch and I started thinking about that um, as I started thinking about that I also started reading or trying to read novels in the American canon about money and I was surprised to find that there were precious few of those and that to me that 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 to me was all important in the process of, of writing the book because I don't need to stress, explain, or expand on the place that wealth has in the American imagination, the place that money has in our collective idea of who we are as a people. And yet, despite its outsized presence in, in the American narrative, it's almost absent from, from the literary canon. This to me was fascinating. And it pointed to, to, a, to a certain taboo that I thought was worth of examination. Um, and um, so I'm not saying that my book comes to is here to fill that gap, you know, that that would be extremely presumptuous. I'm just saying that the existence of the gap was to me very productive. Um, so uh, and then as I started to read about wealth in, in historical documents, it became also very clear that it was a world where th there was no room for women. They had been expelled from the narrative of capital in, in the United States and everywhere else I would assume quite safely, I think. Um, so that to me also merited um, uh, a revision because it, it is obviously not an accidental sort of omission. It's, it's a deliberate erasure. Uh, and that's when the notion of voice to me became very important. Uh, because, you know, it's such a, it's, it's male voices that we hear in these narratives. And I thought that I would dramatize the issue of voice instead of simply comment on it. And that's why we have four voices in the book. And that's why also the reader is invited to question what they think or their assumptions when encountering these voices, you know, um, and what kind of pre-assigned relationship to truth a voice has, you know? Um, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a really, I think that resonates with me a lot because the book is many things. It's a personal story. 
it's a bit of a history as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, you can tell with the research that you've done. And because of, of, of both of those things, you've head on taken on the whole, the whole American mythology around wealth. And also you start raising questions about what is truth, what is historical truth, what really did happen, what really does happen, what is history, what is the role of historian, how do you gather up history? All of that to me was just so fascinating, you know, particularly given the construct of your narrative, the fact that, you know, you have, in fact, someone says something, I believe, which I loved. Imagine the relief of finding out that one is not the one one thought one was, right? And you you can generalize that to imagine not the relief, but the consternation in discovering that the history you thought was the history really isn't the history. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for for singling out that it's it's a sort of a diptych. It's it's two iambic pentameters written by this made up poet called Sutherland. Uh, and and of course, the paradox there is the repetition of the word one all the time, uh, only to 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 deny oneness or sameness. Um, uh, so yeah, you, you're perfectly right, Mitchell, to say that you know identity is is at the core of the book, uh, and 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 how we gain or ascertain our identity, or our identities through our voices and through our narratives, for sure. At the same time, you you, you brought up the, the 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 issue of history, and I think at the very core of of the book is the um, attempt at thinking about the evanescent line that divides fiction from history you know and 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 it's a line that that's renegotiated uh, all the time i mean historians teach us this over and over again i think i think history and historiography are to an enormous have become over the course of the 20th century mainly the you know the attempt at thinking about his how history itself is made and how so many of these um, uh, uh, accounts that, that we take to be you know, factual are indeed uh, 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 ideological constructs you know, at the service of perpetuating certain, certain structures of power and so on and so forth. We, I mean, all of this is fairly obvious, I think, after um, you know, uh, uh, all the academic work over the last, I would say, roughly 70 years. So historians have told us this repeatedly, uh, and yet, uh, you know, we fiction writers seem to be very invested and concerned and anxious about depicting reality faithfully, <laughs> you know, this, this, despite, uh, you know, uh, these, these constant reminders uh, of the fact that that, that reality is, is in flux and it's being questioned all the time. So I think what I wanted to do with this, with this book was to shift the emphasis of the question and the structure of the question itself and not think so much about how literature may aspire to imitate life, but rather to consider how fiction can shape reality because it, because it does. We see it all of the time. 
and th and this and this to me was was absolutely uh, fascinating uh, because in the end, also it's true that th there are no there are no financial or political there is no financial or 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 political power without a narrative to to prop that up. So there is a codependency there that that to me is sometimes a little bit overlooked. Well, and and in the broad sense, that's what American exceptionalism has been all about, right? Is about creating narratives and myths. Absolutely. In, in order to, yes. In order to hang some kind of political narrative on. Yeah. And, well, and it's we, the, see it, we see it right now happening all the time. I mean, that is that is what is happening now with this whole assault on schools and the teaching of history. And the, and the banning of books and the banning of this absolutely diminishing you know diminishing this new kind of scholarship that's coming forward to reimagine what our history was really like yeah i mean i that's that's spot on and you know because my, my previous book kind of examines certain myths of the 19th century you know already you have there the idea of you know, manifest destiny, which is, which, which, you know, to me is, is such a frightening uh, notion, you know, that there is a manifest destiny and the idea of this sort of rugged individual against nature and against institutions even, you know, which is something we see to this day, you know, and, and, and this, this whole notion that, that, you know, this bastardized idea of freedom, which is, you know, this, the individual above any kind of institutional constraint, even if it's the, the very institutional constraints that make us up as a nation, you know, uh, th there is this fetishized notion of the individual above all of that, that I take great issue with. Um, uh, and I think that permeates, for instance, gun culture. And, you know, it's, there's a very direct line from all of these things. Uh, so I think this, this uh, exceptional individual is the origin of this notion of this exceptional nation, you know. Uh, I, I feel it's, you know, necessary to say again that this exceptional individual tends to be white and male too, right? But um, let's not forget, you, 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 were, you were talking about exceptionalism today, and one, one thing that I discovered, and I'll, I'll keep this brief, when I was doing my archival work for Trust, and I was reading press and political documents from the 20s and 30s, you know, is that there is an unbending, unbending line that goes from the, the, the sort of the Republican agenda in the 1920s to the Republican agenda in the 2020s. It's all the same stuff. It's, uh, you know, low taxation for the rich. Uh, it is uh, uh, lack of financial regulation. It is limiting immigration from certain very, very specific countries. In, in, in 1924, it was Asia and, uh, and Italy, uh, which I discuss in the, in the book. And, you know, and, and we all know about the travel bans and the family separated in Mexico, you know, but um, so, so that was also very targeted at, at the time. It's also uh, American exceptionalism in terms of foreign policy. It's also, we're going to say small state, but we will have uh, protective tariffs whenever needed to, to protect our interests. 
we're going to send our soldiers to war and then we're not going to take care of them when they come back home. Let's remember Calvin Coolidge vetoed aid, vetoed that that Congress had passed to 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 help the soldiers coming back from the Great War from the front. He vetoed it. Um, so it goes on and on and on and on. And it's the same playbook over, over a century, you know. I mean, they're not called conservatives for nothing. But the beauty of fiction is that you are in some ways able to get to the heart of the matter through the exploration of a single life, which right. is so interesting to me. Yeah. Well, I, I tried to do that, but, but also, you know, one is not the one one thought one was. So exactly. <laughs> to, to, to quote that again. So what is that? You said, and I quote you back to at yourself, one single life. I think that the, the book is also questioning the singularity of our lives and how really we are prismatic beings, uh, whether we want to or not. Well, I, I mentioned the single life because I didn't want to give away too much. Talk about the influence of Borges on, on, on both the style of the book and and the sensibility of it as well. Oh man, I mean, I Borges is all important to me, and I, you know, I feel that I I I fell in love with American literature. I fell in love to the, and I, I'm not using that expression loosely. Like I fell in love to the extent that I moved to the United States, you know, just just to to live that. Um, and and the beginning of that love was was Borges. I would I would I would read uh, you know all his essays on American literature and there and I've written about those essays too, and and how American literature literature informs a lot of his short stories as well. So th that 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 would be one of the first things I would point out. I think another major influence uh, is rather obviously the playfulness with. Genre, you know, typically you, you know, a, a Borges short story, his best short stories look like philosophical essays, you know, and and vice versa, and um, you know his and and his short stories that are sort of widely imaginative have such a deep philosophical core. So, uh, but he also played with detective fiction, you know, and uh, and and many other genres. So. So that irreverence or that or that uh, sort of messing up or messing with the expectations we walk into a genre, I definitely learned. I learned from Borges. I think another thing is, uh, let's call it sort of a, a joyful disregard for boundaries of any kind. I just mentioned genres, but also national literatures or historical periods. Bor Borges really doesn't doesn't care about those distinctions and and makes unexpected connection connections between very disparate and distant dots and that's something i like to do as well or it's the way i like to think about about literature i would add two more things one is sort of his his the pleasure he found sort of in in framed narratives and nesting dolls and uh and and that sort of thing of sort of creating creating referential context for this for each kind of story that that so surrounding each story with more literature which is something that that is important and meaningful to me and and has really uh determined the way i i think about my own writing and and lastly sorry if this is too long I, I, you know, 
there is I aspire to a, a certain sense of austerity in in my in my in my style that I that I think comes from Borges. I mean, and I, I and I know there there's there are many florid moments in this in this book, but but um, th- I I'm all about control in in the prose, you know, and and I'm, I'm I edit most of my work day has to do with editing already existing stuff rather than generating new sentences. Um, and I feel the sense of control in Borges. And then I, and I, you know, that's something that I, that I look to him for. It was so playful as well. I found, I found it so playful, which kept me going. I kept thinking to myself, all right, what is he going to do next? Where is he going to take us next? <laughs> Oh, that that really warms my heart, and I'm I'm glad you used the word playful because um, uh, I, I I fear now that our conversation took, and I do, I have a tendency to do this all the time. Like it took a very heavy academic turn, and it it holds, it suddenly seemed that the book is this kind of you know it's 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 work, which which oh, is no. which is not it it is it, it is it is a game at. at at its core, it's a game. It's just brilliant. It makes me wish that I was, you know, uh, a judge for either the Pulitzer or the National Book Award. Oh, man. I mean, I think oh, I can make so a really kind. good case. It's it's one of the best things I've read in a very, very long time. Oh, Mitch. But let's go back to your relationship with books. Because yeah. all I have to do is look behind you to know that you have a very, <laughs> very deep relationship to reading and to books and to words. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, this all started very at a very early age. I, 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 there were books at home and it was a very book-friendly family and I had, I had access to all of them. And, um, and I also, from very early on, started, started writing, you know, very, very bad short stories, very, even worse poems. And uh, comic books, I loved comic books books with with all my heart I, I still do and um, uh, so I think I I always knew that I was going I wanted to be a writer like I, I never wanted to be a fireman or anything like that <laughs> and and you know and then because uh, in my uh, you know uh, in during my early 20s in in Argentina there were no creative writing programs or anything like that so the the reasonable thing was to get a degree in in literature like I got something equivalent to like a comp lit kind of thing you know um uh because that that was the way to stay close to literature and maybe you know get a job and then and then that and I kept writing fiction all along the way but then eventually academic work really took over my life for for a number of years and I I I I became very serious about that and I and I you know I thought I would I would become an academic and but then writing sort of uh, prevailed and 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 now I'm I'm almost a full-time fiction writer. Were you were you always writing in English or did you write uh, in Spanish? No, I mean since since I started writing seriously by by which I mean in a in a disciplined fashion, you know, every day several hours and submitting things that were consistently rejected but all of that was in English of course I started writing in Swedish and Spanish when I was when I was a, when I was a child 
but but as as soon as it became sort of a, a true aspiration for what I wanted it to be for my life, um, I started writing English, and I, I moved to London when I was I think twenty three, twenty three years old, and um, as, as soon as I finished that degree, I was I was mentioning I got I got a scholarship from the British Council and when I did my master's there. And then I came to New, to New York. So by now, I have spent most of my life in English-speaking countries. Mitchell, I would, like, it's, it's hard for me to express the degree to which my work was rejected for over a decade. Like, it was a wall of rejection. And in the distance, was went to a slush pile and, and you know, uh, at, at Coffeehouse Press. And, and it was read there by, by the publisher, who was Chris Fishbach at the time. And it and it and it and it came out, but um, again without without an agent or anything. And I I kept doing it despite the world asking me please to stop. <laughs> and and feeling I'm feeling a little I'm feeling a little crazy uh, because you know it's hard and and not only crazy but also I started getting very angry and resentful to be honest with you like it, it wasn't it wasn't a happy toward the end of that very long stretch I was I was I was losing it a little bit yeah well I'm glad you persisted and <laughs> you know I mean you know when that book came out I remember you know it was you know every it it, it in the distance developed a readership exactly the way a readership ought to develop which is reader to reader to reader to reader right so is well you're missing you're missing an important uh, uh link there booksellers bo book you and guys books, well, right. you guys were you guys turned that book into what it became like i owe booksellers everything for that book well because people really loved it and you wrote this amazing book and what the one thing that we love to do is you know, we love to turn our readers, you know, our customers onto things that they don't normally necessarily see. Right. And so the promise of trust has been, you know, really fulfilled, uh, Hernan. And I can't tell you how much, you know, all of us are so thrilled with being able to follow up in the distance by putting this into. Nice. You know, oh, readers. I love hearing this. That and I think by now and being on tour as you have been, I'm sure you've heard from a lot of those readers. Has there any? Has there been what? What has been the reaction? Has there been anything surprising that you found from people? Well, in 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 general, there, there are many different kinds of of reactions, and I, you know, it's very easy to reach out to me online. Like I'm so easy to find and send an email to, and I and I get a lot of emails actually from from just readers from you know. Uh, people I don't know, and I, I love that. Uh, I, it means a lot to me. Um, a funny thing that has happened <laughs> with within the distance, there is uh, a, a late chapter where uh, you know the protagonist is living sort of in a hole, and uh, and a passage is repeated. Uh, you know, it appears three times in an almost identical fashion, and it's very disorienting, which is. The effect. So for a long time, I would get emails telling me, you know, oh, I really loved your book, but you should let your editor know that there is a passage that is repeat, you know, they, they thought it was some kind of glitch. Um, and here I get, I, I have been receiving a bunch of emails from 
uh, eager readers who get to the second book, which is very fragmentary and unfinished. And, and it says, I'm in the process of reading your book. And I've noticed that you left a lot of notes to self in there that your editor didn't catch. I thought I should let you know. <laughs> like, no, 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 keep going. It will all be explained. <laughs> that is really, no, it's funny because, you know, my, my sense, I remember experiencing that. And then that gave me, that opened up a whole thing. Once I realized what you were doing there, it opened up this sense of revelation about the character again. Which was really interesting. Um, that's funny. Yeah. No. Well, it's you know, and and I think for those for those people who have not experienced trust yet, you know, just know that it keeps turning on itself, and you have to read it closely, and <laughs> and it is you know, it's a a wonderful puzzle that I enjoyed so much putting together. Um, would you read a little bit from it? Yeah. You sure. <clears throat> Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to read from the third section of the book, which is called A Memoir Remembered. And it's written by this fictional author called Ida Partenza. And here we meet Ida in uh, the year of uh, 1938, uh, applying for a job. There was no need to confirm the exact address on the newspaper ad. Although I was almost an hour early, when I reached Exchange Place, the line of young women outside the building had already bent around the corner of Broad and almost reached Wall Street. Several men walking by slowed down to inspect the girls and without ever coming to a full stop, make a joke or a comment. Almost all of them adjusted their ties or straightened their jackets, ensuring they looked neat and proper before making their lewd remarks. The ashen skyscraper took up most of the block. Because I had only seen its pyramidal crown from the Brooklyn waterfront, I could not help but pause and look up. Stern, clean lines coursed up the limestone panels only to be interrupted by copper cornices with overly ornate tracery, Gothic arches, and busts of futuristic looking gladiators. Greedily, comically, the building claimed all of history for itself, not just the past, but also the world to come. Around the corner, a new high rise was being erected. The angular skeleton seemed ready to pounce on all neighboring buildings. Somehow, the hollowness of the structure made it grander. Like impossible canoes, Steel beams hanging from unseen wires cruised through the sky. Below, their magnified shadows drifted down the streets, making a few confused passersby look up at the brief eclipse. I had a sudden dizzy spell when I noticed that one of the beams floating up above was dotted with men. That was great, Hernan. Okay, that great. was really, really wonderful. And, you know, one of the great one of the, you know, there are so many, so many people who've weighed in on this book, but I think anyone who listens to that reading will agree that, you know, Jacqueline Woodson, when she said that trust is that rare jewel of a book, draw dropping storytelling against the backdrop of beautiful writing. Oh. Uh, I couldn't agree with her more on this. And uh, Hernan, it's, it's been a pleasure to have you on The Literary Life. Thank you. 
Mitchell, it's always such a joy to talk with you and thank you for being such a champion of, of good books. And can I please come and visit you again soon? Well, we're going to hopefully have you down for the book fair, I hope. Oh, let's do that. So come yeah, in November. That'll be a lot of fun. Drinks on me. Thank you.